So as I mentioned, I'm going to speak to you today about second chances. And um, God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and many more. And if you think about life in general, um, there are very few things that you get right away on the first try. You might be able to think of one or two things that the first time you ever threw a dart, it hit the bullseye or something like that. Um, very rare, though. Most things, there's a pretty steep learning curve, or at least some of a learning curve, and we have to, we have to take a couple of attempts. And um, in our household right now, we're, we're working on driving. And so um, I personally have a preference for manual transmissions. My old car is a stick shift. Um, I, I just like feeling that more connected to the engine. And originally I thought, you know, our daughters need to learn to drive a stick shift because everyone should learn to drive a stick shift. Um, amen. Thank you, Byron. Well, except one of my daughters came back and said, Dad, in like five years, those things are going to be obsolete. And they're dangerous because it's like four more things that I have to think about. And I mean, how, and, and, you know, they don't get as much of a good gas mileage, and you're slower off the line, and the whole list of reasons why not to get a stick shift. So I relented. My other daughter was more interested in learning because yeah, just out of curiosity. So with apologies to those of you that live on the Salt Myrtle Loop in the back of our neighborhood, here's how we're learning the stick shift. Go to every mailbox and stop. Go to every mailbox and stop. Put the hazards on and just go, hmm. Because if you can get out of first gear, then all the rest, it's easy. It's, it's that clutch gas exchange. Nobody has ever gotten into a car the first time and known how to do that with their feet, ever. Never happened. It requires multiple tries. And that's just one example. And there are tons of examples in our lives where it takes multiple tries to get this thing figured out. And you know, frankly, in the spiritual life, it's no different. There are many things where we need second chances to get it figured out. We need God's help to show us what matters to him and what it looks like for us to come into alignment with his kingdom. And so God is a God of second chances, and thanks be to God for that, or we would never do it. So we, we have this God who gives second chances. We all agree with that. Um, if I ask you, does God give second chances, you would all say yes, and you could probably tell me examples. But then if I ask this question, it's a little harder. Why? For what purpose does he give second chances? The temptation is to think, he does it just because he loves me. But it's not just because he loves you. He gives us second chances for significance. He wants us to use those second chances to get caught up in his kingdom work to extend second chances to other people as well. It's always mission-oriented. You are saved and caught up into something bigger than you. It's for others as well as for you. So here's a map of where I want to go today. Um, I want to talk first about the purpose in general of second chances, and then I want to talk about a particular picture of a second chance, that being Jonah. But we'll get to the scriptures in a minute. So significance for us is found in God's work. When we participate in God's work in the world, what we're doing is eternal in scale and scope. And if you think about many of the other things we give our attention to, they're very temporary. They will pass away. They're part of what we need to live this life, but they're not eternal in their scope. They're passing away. God wants us to be caught up in the bigger things. He wants us to seek first his kingdom. He he's, gives us these second chances so that our lives will learn to be kingdom lives, to be part of what he's doing in the world. Now think about the Bible for a minute, this book. There's a number of different phrases you could use, and they'd all be accurate, but if I asked you to summarize in one phrase the message of this book, what is it? You could say, what I wrote down here is, this book is about God's love for everyone. God loves everyone. That's what this book is about. 
The psalm we just sung picked that up perfectly about all of the nations. God's love is for all people. This book is a book that shows us how he wants all people to be saved. He doesn't want anyone to perish. A number of years ago, um, a younger member of our church came to talk to me. Um, She was dealing with grief and was saddened and had a deep theological question, and her mom wisely suggested that she come and talk to her pastor. Now, I will warn you, sometimes kids ask the hardest questions, and when they go theological, it can be even harder. Parents know better than to try and stump the pastor. Kids don't. Um, so, so this, um, this kid came, um, she's awesome, and came and asked her question. And her question was, you know, I, I know, I know my loved ones with Jesus, and I know Jesus is coming back, and we're all going to get to be together again, but why can't he come back now? That's a hard question right? And in that moment, the Lord gave the answer. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced there's the Holy Spirit just helping me to minister to her. And the Holy Spirit re- brought to memory a verse from 2 Peter 3.9. And it's about the Lord's patience. The Lord, with the Lord, a, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And, and the apostle Peter that wrote it said, God is not slow in fulfilling his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He wants everyone to come to repentance. And I shared, well, it's, be, it's because if Jesus was to come back right now, there are people who haven't heard the gospel yet, and he wants all people to come. So he asks us to be patient because we all want to be with Jesus right now, but we, but we also want everybody to get to come. And I'm telling you, that was straight from the Holy Spirit. It seemed to help. It answered her question. And I think it's true. I mean, I think that's part of why Jesus hasn't returned is because he's waiting for more people to come into his kingdom because God wants all people to be saved. He doesn't want anyone to perish. All people, all peoples, ethnically and otherwise, everyone. It's interesting if you take this book and you look at the, like Genesis, you see the Tower of Babel story where the languages are confused and people are scattered all over the world. And then you get to Pentecost, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, and you see through the Holy Spirit, the apostles are given the ability to speak all the languages to all the different ethnic groups that are in Jerusalem, and and they hear the gospel. And so Babel's being reversed, and it's being brought back to one language for all people, and the language is that of the Holy Spirit. And then when you get to the end of this book in in, uh, Revelation, it says this. This is Revelation uh, 7, 9. After this, I, John, looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Our God, the God who belongs not just to me, but to all peoples. And this is a beautiful picture of the diversity of heaven. All people will be there. Different languages, cultures, socioeconomic backgrounds, the whole thing. It's a picture of heaven. That's what's coming, and we can expect that. So it says something to us about a problem that we have. A problem that we have, people that have always had. A problem of discriminating and saying that one person is better than another. And we're going to get to Jonah in a second, because that was his problem. Now, sometimes distinguishing is a helpful thing. I'll you know, share my age here um, by this illustration, but when I was a kid watching Sesame Street, there was the little uh, exercise where, you know, using the technology they had back then, they split the screen into four videos, and there was a little song, one of these kids is not like the other, 
Um, and you were supposed to watch and figure out, like, that kid's jumping rope, that one's, uh, that one's bouncing a basketball, he's not like the others. And it was supposed to help you distinguish and look for, you know, those kind of things. That's very different than distinguishing and assessing a value. Oh, that kid's not like the others because he's only playing basketball where they all are jumping rope. Jumping rope is clearly better than basketball. It never did that. It just helped you make distinctions, but not a value assessed to them. But the human problem is that we, we then assess values and we say, well, that person's not like the other one. I like that one better. That one is better. That one's more deserving. That one, something about that one is, makes it inherently more worthy. That's a human problem. And it takes many different forms. It's not necessarily just um, race. It can be, I don't understand why they think the way they do, or I don't like uh, their style of dress, or I don't like whatever it is. We start to put people into boxes in a bad way. That's the problem with Jonah. Jonah's problem was that he was a, and I'll just call it out what it is. He was a nationalistic racist. He thought our nation is better than the others. Our race is superior. That was what Jonah thought. And he didn't think that the gospel was uh, for the Ninevites. He didn't think they were worthy. And it's a pretty heinous sin when you look at who God is and what the scriptures teach, especially going back to Abraham. When God came to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis, he said, through your offspring, all peoples of the earth, all ethnic groups, everyone will be blessed. This gospel was for the ends of the earth. And Israel thought that it was for them, that they were special. It was just for them. They didn't pick up that they were supposed to be a light to all the nations. And this is very present in every culture. I mean, it's a human condition. It's not just Israel. It's not just Jonah. It's not just America. It's, it's a human condition. But in America, it's very present too. There's a movie that sticks in my head. Um, I, the, I can't get the line out of my head. It's, it's uh, from like 2003. It's not a great movie. It's a, you know, it's a satire against American government and racism in our country, but the movie's called Head of State. And in the movie, what happens is there's a presidential election coming up, and the president and the vice president that was going to be running in the election, both are taken out in a plane crash. And so this particular party doesn't have a candidate to put forward. And so they think, well, we're going to definitely lose this election. Let's at least get somebody that will help us win really well in four years in the next election. So the, um, the other guy, that's, his name is Brian Lewis, that they're, that they're going to be um, uh, debating and competing against, is set up against Chris Rock as the character. Chris Rock is the actor. His character is going to uh, be put forward as a presidential nominee. And um, so the politicking begins. And the Brian Lewis characters, this is the line that sticks in my head, his speeches end like this. And it's funny, and then you think about it, and it's awful. He goes, God bless America, and no place else. And he says it with like big fanfare, and walks off, and they all applaud. And I think, ah. Later in the movie, Chris Rock actually him to, convinces him to debate. And originally, he didn't want to debate because he didn't think Chris Rock's candidacy was even worth a debate. Like, he was so beneath him. And in the debate, Chris Rock actually starts getting the people's favor. But in, this, in one of his comments, he said, you end all your speeches by saying, God bless America and no place else. God has blessed America immensely. God, God should bless all the other places too. He starts going, God bless Haiti. God bless Jamaica. God bless Africa. And he's calling out all these, piece, these places where it would be a darker skin complexion. And it scandalizes the movie. But it makes the point. God's blessing is for all people. It's not for one. It's a challenging thought. Jonah was thinking, God bless us and only us, not Nineveh. 
Far be it from Nineveh to be worthy of the gospel. So the purpose for second chances is for all people to also get second chances. The gospel is for all people. Now let's look at a, a picture of a particular second chance. And if you want to turn with me in a Bible, go to Jonah. It's page 775. I have to tell you that because literally this is the whole thing right here. That's the entire book of Jonah. In your pew Bible, it's one fold of the Bible. Chapter one, two, three, four. And there's even space left on the second page. It's that short. You can blow past it and not even see it. Page 775. What the author is doing is he is setting up I mean, in four chapters, a lot gets done here. This is brilliantly put together. If you start studying these four chapters, you can see incredible literary technique, incredible, incredible uh, chiastic structure, parallels, all these different things. So I'm, I'm gonna give you, imagine a pyramid, right? And, and with steps coming up to one block on the top. The first call of Jonah is here, and it's paralleled with the second call of Jonah. In the first call, Jonah disobeys, and then he receives mercy alongside the sailors who are sort of contrasting what repentance looks like that he doesn't have. But he disobeys the first call, and then God is merciful to him. And then what Dan preached on last week is then he praises God for that, for being merciful to him in the fish. First call, disobey, praise God. Second call, the Ninevites obey, Jonah is angry. First time, he's praising God. Second time, he's angry. You are merciful on me, praise God. You're merciful on the Ninevites. I'm angry enough to die. And then the top block on this pyramid is the very last verse of the whole thing. If you look at Jonah 4, which we'll look at next week, but the last verse says, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their left, their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And it's left dangling with a question. And it's weird and much cattle. We're just left kind of hanging there. But the whole thing builds up to that question, and it's a rhetorical question, and the answer is, yes, I should. I should pity them, like I pitied you, and like I pity everyone, because that's who I am. So the structure sets that up so that we will see that God loves all people, which of course is what I said this whole book is about. It's God's love letter to us. Now let's look specifically at chapter three, which is the second, commission, the second chance for Jonah. Actually, if you count it, there's probably at least a half a dozen second chances in here for him. But this is the second time God comes to him. And in verse 1 and 2, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, you have to look back to the first chapter and see verse 2 in the first chapter says something slightly different. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So the first call, he tells them what to do and why. The second time he says, go and call out the message that I tell you. You weren't trustworthy the first time. Now we're gonna do this a little bit more intimately. I want you to go there and I'm gonna tell you what to say when you get there. What Jonah doesn't realize is his message is actually gonna include his odor. You've been in a fish for three days. You smell bad. You're coming from the sea. You're going to tell these people in Nineveh your story. It's going to be part of the message. God has sent me, and he has delivered me through mercy in the sea in a fish. I stink, and I don't want to be here, but God sent me. And then when you look at what his message actually is in verse, what is it, verse 4? It's eight words. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's a bad sermon. Really bad one. 
It's short, and it's meant to be short, but obviously he says more than that in what he's, what he's communicating. It's weird that an Israelite prophet is there. It's weird the way he got there, and he's calling out destruction on a city. One person going into a city of 120,000 people. Like, that's, that's just, the whole thing is a little bit weird. And it tells us in here that, that this was a huge city, and it says uh, Nineveh was exceedingly great, a great city. Um, three days' journey in breadth. Now, there's a footnote in the ESV that says, or a visit was three days' journey. You know, this is a historical city. I mean, it really exists. And, and they've dug it up, and they've seen the city walls, and it's about two miles across, more or less. Certainly, it wouldn't take you three days to walk two miles. But it, what they're saying here is it would take you three days to fully explore and visit this city, because it's so complex and rich and dense and has all kinds of stuff. So he spent one day, he's gone a day's journey, he spent one day studying the city, and then he begins to call out. So a third of the city he's seen, and he's now starting to call out his message. And then they repent. And what happens here is, I think it's, it's significant that his sermon is only eight words, because this book has a contrast of size and, and scope. So eight words, and 120,000 people repent. And the point is, Jonah, you have the good news and you're not repenting. I'm going to show you what repentance looks like again. You cried out and said you fear the Lord, and all the sailors actually feared me, but you didn't. You wanted to be thrown into the sea like a martyr. You could have repented there and said, guys, take me back to Joppa. I've got to go to Nineveh. I've gone the wrong way. God will be merciful to you. He'll bring the storm down. Let's turn the boat around. No, he wants to be thrown into the sea. He wants to be a martyr and say, I died not going to Nineveh. He didn't repent, but they did. The sailors did. Here, he still hasn't repented, as we're going to see next week, and 120,000 people all repent. And it's a picture for him of what repentance looks like, and for us. So how to repent? Look, look what happens in verse 5. He gives his weak little sermon. He smells like a fish. He tells his story. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Repentance starts with believing God's word. Do you believe what God says? They believed God. Then they called for a fast. They fasted from food. What fasting does is it focuses your attention. It gives you better listening ears. Okay, God, you've got my attention. I believe that you're coming to, to overthrow my city. What can be done? They stop eating and they just start listening. They're focused on God. And they put on sackcloth. That's a, that's a way to humble themselves. Not wearing nice clothes. They're wearing burlap sacks, and they, sometimes they put ashes on their head, and they want to look downcast. Um, it's a way of acknowledging God is God and I am not. I was speaking with somebody on the retreat this weekend, and um, they've been coming to our church for a couple of years now, and they have friends that go to their old church, which is not a liturgical church at all, and they said, their friends said to them, are you guys still going to that sit down, kneel down, stand up church? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, yeah, we are. Well, here's the thing. Kneeling is a way to humble ourselves before God. It's helpful to do physical things to bring ourselves into repentance, to bring ourselves before God. Where else in your life do you kneel down? It's fitting to come into God's house and kneel down. They put on sackcloth because it was fitting because they were about to suffer judgment. So they were fasting to listen. They were believing what God was saying, and they were now putting on humility by wearing this, this sackcloth. And then a little further, we find out something more. Um, in verse 8, it says, once word got up to the king of Nineveh, he, he um, came off his throne and did the same thing, and then he, he issued a decree. And in verse 8, he says, let man, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, 
and let them call out mightily to God. So now he's added prayer to repentance, right? So they're believing God, they're fasting so they can hear better, they're humbled in their clothing, and now they're crying out to God, they're praying. And then he says, um, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This is why I think there's a little bit more to Jonah's sermon. He told them a little bit about why their city was gonna be overturned. It's because you're a nasty, violent, evil people. Stop doing those things. So repentance means I'm going in this direction, I have a change of mind, and now I'm going in this direction. I was evil, doing evil things, and had violence, I stopped doing those things. So they actually have a change. That's part of repentance. And the city repents. And they're showing, by example, they're showing Jonah and us how to repent. Do these things. Stop doing those things. The message of God is heeded and he relents by the end of chapter three. He does not overturn their city. Now, I don't think this is an example of God changing his mind. I think God actually didn't want to destroy the city. Why else would he have said 40 days instead of just destroy the city? They certainly deserved it. They were wicked and evil, but what God does is he gives warnings. It's like the warning track in baseball. The fly ball's hit and it's going back and the, the outfielder's running back. They put the gravel down so he steps into the gravel and realizes if I keep going, I'm going to slam into that wall, but I don't have to take my eyes off the ball. 40 days and then your city's going to be overturned. In other words, repent. I don't want to overturn your city. I, I want you to stop doing what you're doing and come into alignment with my kingdom. That's why I'm giving you this second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance. I'm giving you 40 days of chances to repent. God wanted to relent of this disaster. God. God is wrathful and God is the judge, but his mercy and his love are even greater. He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we see that all the way through the scriptures. It's not just Old Testament uh, things like this. It's the New Testament as well. Romans 2 said that um, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. We see his mercy and then that makes us want to repent. So I think Jesus is probably the best example of this out there. The Son of God comes and he does great deeds for people and he teaches the kingdom of God and he's gentle with them. He doesn't come as a judge. He comes as a savior. And what do we do? We kill him. And then what does he do? He offers us forgiveness. Forgive them for they know not what they do. I think of the Pentecost sermon that Peter preached in Acts chapter two. It's so interesting how he accuses them of killing the Son of God. So. Pentecost event happens, we'll look at it in a couple weeks, and, and he begins to explain how this, quote, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Right there, his audience, he's saying, you did this, you killed the Son of God. And if you think about what we deserve for that, it's staggering. But when he gets to the end of his sermon, it says they were cut to the heart, and, and they said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then catch this. This is why I went here. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all, I circled in my Bible, all, and for all who are far off, whether they be Ninevites or somebody else. This is for all people. God gives us second chances for significance so that we will be the kind of people that extend second chances to others. So that like Peter, he will tell this good news to all these different nations in Israel that day in Jerusalem. So what do we do with this? Well, one, recognize that you're saved and immediately enlisted. 
You're enlisted into a life of significance to join in the kingdom of God. You are saved for a purpose, so pay it forward. Second, watch out for us and them language. Watch out for unhealthy distinctions. If you find yourself saying us and them, just listen for those words, these unhealthy discriminations that creep into our lives. God doesn't discriminate. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of my glory, all, and yet I desire to have mercy on all. That also is in Romans. When Peter um, comes to Jesus and says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? You know what Jesus said? I know you do. He said, not seven times, seven times seven times. Or it's not about math, to paraphrase, until it takes. Keep forgiving, keep forgiving, keep forgiving. That's what he says. Jesus is constantly giving second chances and third chances and seventh chances. That's who our God is, and he wants us to be that kind of people as well. May we be that and bring the gospel to all people. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for giving each one of us multiple opportunities to get into alignment with your kingdom. Lord, forgive us for thinking that you've saved us just because of ourselves. Show us what it looks like to live a life of significance. And Lord, give us gratitude for the many ways that you have extended your mercy to us. And I pray for our church that it would be truly welcoming of all people who come. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you now to kneel if you're able, and we're going to join in humbly praying for the church and the world.